welcome to Swarthmore Presbyterian Church's podcast. This is your host, Alex Evangelista. We are delighted you are here. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the sermon, recorded for September 12, 2021, titled, Communal Wisdom for a Culture in Crisis, by Reverend Joyce Shen. Would you please pray with me? God, we ask you now to open our hearts so completely that in the hearing of your word, your law may be written upon our hearts and we may become letters of your love. Amen. Studying, practicing the piano, and going to church. These were the three practices that most formed me as I was growing up. I wonder what practices most formed you to become the person that you are. At times, I misunderstood the point of some of these practices. For example, when I was 16, I may have thought that I was practicing the piano in order to win a piano competition. When I was going through high school, I may have studied hard in order to get into a particular college. Deep down, however, I knew, because my parents told me over and over again, that the point of these practices were not for the sake of achieving some goal or making me good at something, but rather they were for the sake of forming me. Studying was for the sake of becoming a lifelong learner. Practicing piano was for the sake of honing listening skills and skills of discriminating and integrating. Going to church, what was that for? At different times in my life, I would have answered this differently. It is a question that I imagine every one of us has likely asked. These days, it is a question that keeps coming up in my mind and in conversation with my husband, Michael, as our daughter has gone off to college and we wonder if the practice of going to church and sitting beside her father in worship every Sunday of her life will have some sticking power. I wonder how our daughter, over time, will answer the question for herself of how going to church has formed her. It's not uncommon for parents to desire to pass down to their children all the lessons they learned through life, about life, for life. Parents want their children to live well. This past year, as I felt greater urgency to squeeze in and impart to my daughter all of the most important lessons I ever learned about life, I found myself wishing that I could talk less, that I could speak more concisely, more pithily, and thus more memorably. I'm sure she wished that too. What we find in the book of Proverbs are pithy, memorable sayings that parents of ancient Israel passed down to their children so that they could live wisely and well. 
They were passed down first orally and then in writing by countless parents over many generations. The sages who compiled and wrote down these proverbs introduced them by saying, hear, my child, your father's instruction, and do not reject your mother's teaching, for they are a fair garland for your head and a pendant for your neck. In these words, you can hear the precious value that the sages placed on these lessons. Elsewhere, the sages speak of these lessons not only as precious pendants to be worn as necklaces, but to be written on the tablets of our hearts. The Proverbs were intended to instruct us in living well by forming us, our innermost selves, to be wise. As we can hear in the scripture lesson read this morning, there is a lot at stake here. There is no relativism in Lady Wisdom's message. Either you grow in wisdom or you grow in folly. It's a warning, not unlike Jesus's, when he says, beware that no one leads you astray. Her voice is a prophetic voice calling us to be discriminating about the path we choose. Because while wisdom leads to a life well lived, folly leads to self-destruction. Trial and error is an unaffordable learning strategy especially in times of crisis. While the Proverbs originated over time, perhaps through trial and error that comes with ordinary life, the compilation and recording of these wise sayings took place at two extraordinary times in the history of ancient Israel, times of particular peril, and it doesn't seem coincidental First, the institution of kingship in ancient Israel was the occasion for the consolidation of proverbial speech. We are told that King Solomon composed 3,000 proverbs and that people came from all nations to hear the wisdom of Solomon. While it's unlikely that Solomon wrote all the proverbs, it is more likely that at this critical juncture in, when Israel became like other nations, it became important for the community's core values to be kept intact so that they could be passed down to future generations. This was the time then when the Proverbs that we find in chapters 10 through 29 were compiled. It was later, at another significant crisis in ancient Israel's history, that renewed attention was given to these wise sayings. When the kingdom of Israel collapsed at the hands of the Babylonians and a significant portion of the population was deported into exile, the Proverbs again became especially important. That is when the framing chapters were added, resulting in the book of Proverbs that we have in the Bible. When Israel as a nation state failed, the Israelites turned to the wisdom of their ancestors for social cohesion. Whereas the first crisis of the rise of kingship prompted the first collection of Proverbs, the second crisis of the monarchy's collapse led to its consolidation into the book of Proverbs. It doesn't seem coincidental 
that in times of crisis, the wisdom of the ages became especially vital. And yet, we know that it is often at such vulnerable times in the life of a nation or society that multiple voices emerge and they compete for our attention and even our alliance. It is against such a backdrop that we can imagine the personified figure of Lady Wisdom crying out in the street, raising her voice in the public square, calling out to those who have ignored, refused, or even scoffed at her. You can hear her exhaustion at the persistent scoffing and hatred for wisdom that she encounters. People fail to discriminate among the things that they hear and perpetuate falsity and foolishness until they become so sated with their own devices that they end up destroying themselves. In contrast, the wisdom that she offers is wisdom that has endured. It does not lead to destruction. It has endured over time and over difference different circumstances and context, different perspectives and peoples. When we take the long view to see which values have endured over all the dynamic changes that any community goes through, there we will find wisdom. Such wisdom is a key to a community's stable identity. And this is precisely what makes such wisdom valuable in times of transition and crisis, when we are bewildered by change and complexity. Wisdom provides a way out of the maze of the present, even when we come to what we perceive to be an impasse. What would you say is the wisdom of Swarthmore Presbyterian Church? Last year, we celebrated our 125th anniversary. None of us have been here that whole time. Over that time, surely this community and those who came before us have weathered many challenges and as a result, have accumulated layers and layers of wisdom. While no single proverb can capture the wisdom of this community, I tried to formulate at least one. What is written on our hearts is not necessarily written on our sleeves. This statement is not a judgment. It is an observation. In getting to know you, I have observed the depth and breadth of passion and compassion written on your hearts coupled with the reserve with which you speak of it and brand it. There is a wisdom in this that I have come to appreciate more and more. It is a way of being that I imagine has enabled this congregation to endure intact, not only weathering many crises, but also maturing and being further formed through them. As a pastor of this church, I know that one of my jobs is to mine the wisdom of this congregation. 
The wisdom that I tried to sum up in the proverb that I made up is today rather countercultural. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that it can feel these days as though many important things are at stake the health of a democracy, the social fabric of civic society, the integrity of social institutions. Sometimes it can feel as though our society may be on a course toward self-destruction. According to a recent Marist NPR PBS NewsHour poll, the proportion of Americans who think the nation is on the right track is at its lowest point in 20 years. Political analyst Amy Walter attributes this feeling to the loss of trust in our nation's institutions. I agree with her. And I find especially insightful the opinion of Yuval Levin, who spoke in an interview with Amy Walter for her public radio segment on restoring faith in American institutions. Yuval Levin is the Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute and Editor-in-Chief of National Affairs. When asked what it means to have trust in institutions and how we got to the point where trust is so low, Yuval Levin responded, it's almost a cliche by now to say that Americans have been losing trust in institutions, and that's certainly been happening for a long time. But it's worth stopping and asking, what does that actually mean? What is trust in an institution? Part of the answer to that is some sense of competence and ability. Surely, we trust an institution that does its job well, but another key part of that is that we trust an institution when it seems to shape the people within it to be trustworthy, when it somehow plays a formative role, an ethical role, that creates more trustworthy people. That is what got my attention. While every institution performs some function, such as that of education or law enforcement, it also forms the people in the institution to do that work by some standard of integrity. The standards bind, even constrain them. For example, journalism is trustworthy only when journalists work within some binding institutional framework of fact-checking and editing. Lawyers can be trusted when they are bound by some professional code that keeps them from doing certain things. Scientific research can be trusted only when it undergoes a rigorous peer review process. While imperfect, these standards have been tried and tested over centuries. Yuval Levin's point is that trust in our institutions deteriorates when it seems that the systems in our country are working for the people inside the institutions, and when the people inside the institutions, rather than being formed and shaped by them, are somehow just displayed by them. Too often these days, he writes, 
The institutions are platforms, and everybody stands on them and shows off or builds a following or builds their brand. That makes institutions very hard for us to trust. Levin's analysis rings true to me. We have seen everywhere the flattening of institutions into platforms, and this impoverishment has dangerous consequences. As members of the body of Christ, we know how critical trust is to the church's mission and ministry. Without trust and trustworthiness, we cannot do one thing true to our mission. Without trust, we cannot proclaim the gospel. We cannot nurture fellowship in the spirit. If we are not trustworthy, we cannot raise our children to trust in God or promote social righteousness in the world. Without trust, how could we receive care from one another? Everything we do and are as a church requires trust. And so, it is imperative for the body of Christ constantly to ask the question of how the practice of going to church and being the church forms us. What are the standards that form us into Christ's body? There is a hymn that comes to my mind. It is entitled, The Servant Song. It begins and ends with these words. Will you let me be your servant? Let me be as Christ to you. Pray that I may have the grace to let you be my servant too. As the wisdom of God, Christ is our standard bearer. He sets the example for us to follow. We won't see Christ on any platform no. To see Christ, we have to look at the cross. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon, recorded for September 12, 2021, titled, Communal Wisdom for a Culture in Crisis, by Reverend Joyce Shen. We'll see you soon, and may the peace of Christ be with you.